0: This morning we continue in light of the resurrection. Uh, We're taking a a week off of our regular study of uh, the book of Romans, which is soon coming to an end. We're up to Romans chapter 15, which we'll begin looking at next week. Uh, But this morning we want to look at a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples the night of the resurrection. So I invite you to turn to John chapter 20, uh, which is the second to last chapter of the gospel. focus will be on verse 21, but for the sake of context, we'll begin reading in verse 19 uh, and continue through 23. Hear the word of our Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The word of our God. Let's go to our God in prayer. Holy God, we do come with thanksgiving yet again. A day of resurrection. A day that we remember the resurrection. A day that we are empowered to live because of the resurrection. We pray, Lord, with the light that you have granted us by the power of your spirit that dwells within all who believe, that you would grant us insight, understanding of these words that you have recorded through your servant John. May this not just be the ritual and the time that we put in to look at the word, but may we open our hearts, may you open our minds, and may you shape us. May it bring conviction for some, encouragement for others, but wholeness for all that we may be knitted together as one body, built up wholly for you. May we find our joy in your work in us and the promise that is ahead because you who began a work continues it and you do it by your word and spirit. So bless us now in this time that we consider your word, that we might be changed, that we might find your joy that we might find our joy in your joy. We pray this in the incomparable name of Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen. Like most of you, I'm looking forward to the increasing freedom that we're having as the virus begins to subside and the weather gets a little bit better. And like many of you, I spent more than my share in this past year uh, binging on movies and, and uh, TV series, some of which were beneficial Others of which are so forgettable that I've already forgotten what it was that I had watched. But of the things that I did see that were more memorable, some uh, that I enjoyed, uh, one was a series that the History Channel uh, puts on, and it's fr- the, uh, the History Channel's The Men Who Built America, but this is their, their second one, the, the Frontiersmen. The first one were the industrialists who built the world as we understand it, but they followed that series up, I guess, because of its popularity, uh, with others who were foundational in. The, uh, uh, in the building of this country in, in which we live and in that series one episode in particular that i enjoyed was the the story of lewis and the clark the lewis and clark expedition i'm not sure why i found that of particular interest it wasn't that it was news to me or that it was new to me i was familiar and and fairly familiar with that story uh, but it, this episode captured my attention to such an extent that i went uh, over to my the, my shelves down in our uh, lower uh, in our, our, our lower level, uh, and pulled off uh, Stephen uh, Ambrose's book, Undaunted Courage, which is a book uh, about the Lewis and Clark Expedition that I have had for years, and I don't know that I'd ever even broken the binding to to read it at all. But I was intrigued, and so I not only saw the episode, but read the book, and, and it just really it grabbed my imagination. And I think in particular, what grabbed me was just this whole sense of of of, of of transcendence, this, this thing that was bigger than these individuals. And what an amazing honor it must have been for Meriwether Lewis when Thomas Jefferson said, you're the guy, you're the one that I want to lead this expedition to not only explore but to open the West for the growth of this young country. Pioneer missionary physician from the 19th century, David Livingstone, once made this observation. If a commission by an earthly king is an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? And I find that a profound question, particularly in light of the way that so many who are part of Christ's church feel about engagement in evangelism and participation in God's global mission. We know that it's something that ought to be done, but most of us, or many of us, are, 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 are concerned. We, we're uncomfortable with it. We, we want somebody else to do it. We'd love to be exempted from it. And those who do participate, I, I, there's a percentage of who, they do it and think, okay, I'll just go ahead and bite the bullet and I'll, I'll participate in it. And, and so Livingstone's question, I think, resonates with me when i was thinking about this particular passage this morning or this week is how is it that we who have been given this great commission by a heavenly king find participating in it to be a sacrifice because make no mistake what we have in the text before us this morning is the commission from our heavenly king, the king that God has put on Zion. It's Christ Jesus. He is God's anointed king. And in this commission, he says, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And he says that not just to some of his disciples that were in that room, but to everybody that's in the room. And by extension, we we see the disciples uh, trained up others, and that continues on. And and, and so this is not just for a specific few, the elite, those who get more done before 9 a.m. than the rest of us get done all day. This is a commission from the heavenly king for everyone who would be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is John's expression of the Great Commission. Now, some of you who grew up in the church might say, now, wait a second, I'm familiar with the Great Commission, and this doesn't sound anything like that. But, you know, the Great Commission, first of all, isn't that in Matthew? I mean, that's how I won all the sword trials when I was in, in middle school, is, you know, they said, find the Great Commission, you go and you turn yourself Matthew 28, there we go, and, you know, all authority in heaven belongs to me, and so go make disciples of all, of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I believed. Isn't that the Great Commission? And the answer is Yes. But the reality is that there are multiple Great Commissions that are expressed in the, each of the Gospels. Each of the Gospels has their own unique expression of, of the Great Commission. If you add Acts, which also has uh, an expression of the Great Commission, there are at least five expressions of, of the Great Commission that will be found in Scriptures. Now, I, I know for some people, they look at that and they say, well, and that lack of continuity because they're not really even they're not saying the same thing. Each of them seems to have a different emphasis or a different nuance or a different, a different scope. And so they look at these things as if they must be somehow in contradiction, and if they're in contradiction, then perhaps somehow I'm alleviated from the responsibility of participating in the first place. I don't know that any of you are thinking that way, but just in case there is anyone who is thinking that way, the fact that there are multiple expressions of the Great Commission is not meaning that they are in contradiction to one another. It just means between the time that Jesus rose and Jesus ascended, in those 40 days, Jesus was so passionate about the mission that the Father had sent him on, that his disciples, those who would come after him, those who were redeemed, would continue, that he talked about it multiple times. In those 40 days, he had several conversations, and in those conversations, he apparently kept on bringing up this this mission that he was commissioning his followers to be involved in. And each of the writers, then recorded the parts that resonated with them. Perhaps from different conversation, perhaps from the same conversation, but each of them records faithfully. The fact that there are multiple expressions of the Great Commission is not an indication that there are somehow unreliable words in the Gospel. It shows us the importance with which our Lord considers this commission that he is sending his people to participate on. It is vitally important because we talk about those things that we consider to be of most importance. And Jesus spoke of this great commission multiple times over the course of just a few short weeks. But despite the importance of the great commission, for those who are familiar with church history, if we're honest, we need to admit that the church throughout history has not always done a great job of living up to this mandate. Church has not always been faithful in living out this mandate. Jesus has said, I will build my church, and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's a promise to those who are engaged in mission. See, we tend to think of this passage and of our own experience as if hell is somehow attacking the church. And then we have to try to hold our ground or retreat into more, more solid ground, retreat into smaller and smaller places, retreat into smaller and smaller huddles. What this passage is saying is that Jesus is going to build his church. He's going to build his church through his people. And the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. Gates are not an offensive weapon. Gates are a defense. Gates are trying to keep things out. We act as if the hell is trying to get into the church. When what Jesus is saying is hell is trying to keep the church out. And throughout this world, Jesus is fulfilling this mission, this promise. Because as the gospel is going to different places of the world, places where it has not been, to dark places where it is not openly received, the gates are getting kicked in and the gospel is being believed. And those who were living in darkness have come to a great light. Those who were living and dead are are now alive because there are some who are willing and have been faithful to go and to believe and to see God at work through whatever labors they've been able to muster. And yet, at the same time, in the places where the gospel seems to have flourished the most, we more and more seem to be hiding, moving to the defense, trying to protect our turf rather than to participate in this mission. The imagery that Jesus uses is that the gates of hell are just going to be shaking with fear. And unfortunately, I think all too often in our culture, the gates of hell are shaking, but with laughter, not with fear. The gates of hell are essentially saying to the church, is that all you got? And we who consider this commission from our great king to be a sacrifice, maybe a sacrifice for a few. We don't always have a response. Now one of the reasons that may be true is because we just have this incredible knack of making simple things complicated. I mean, if you think about it, the Christian life is really quite simple. Love God, love your neighbor, right? That's the essence of everything. Jesus said this is the sum of the whole law. Love God, love your neighbor. Two things. And what's the response of many Christians? Uh, Define neighbor. Because some people are more easily loved uh, than others. We want to be clear as to who this is. Jesus said, okay, here's the definition of neighbor. Anybody that you encounter. uh, Those who love you, those who hate you, even your enemies, those who would do you harm. Love whoever comes into your path. Love all the people of the world. Love as I have loved you. So it kind of clears that up. It doesn't make it any easier, but it it clarifies it for us, is that we are to love, in reality, those who are around us. But we just have this tendency to make simple things difficult. And one of the areas that we have perhaps most made something simple into something complicated is in the area of being faithful to the mission of the church. We often seem to be confused about the primary purpose for which God has created a church and the mission that he expects the church to be participating on. But the reality is that God expects and he has created the church to exist for mission. It's been said that the church is the only organization in the world that exists primarily for the people who are not the members of it. Now, of course, the church exists for the people who are part of it because as we live in community and we encourage one another, we are born with those who mourn, uh, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we encourage one another in the gospel, we build one another up until all reach full maturity in Christ. There's incredible benefits of being part of the church that God has commanded all who believe in him to be part of. And yet he does that because he intends for the church to be on mission that every expression of the church, every local congregation is a mission outpost in order to be able to strategically invade whatever geographic area that it happens to inhabit. Because it doesn't sit here by mistake. It's by God's design. He's placed us here like one of those forts that you see throughout uh, this region, back from the colonial period or go a little bit further west into Tennessee where uh, where, where we come from and, and they were when the back when that was the The West uh, and, and there's just forced that are different outposts They're places of protection But they're also places where, of strategic advancement and every local church is expected to be one of those places of strategic advancement if God intended otherwise if the whole purpose was just to save a people then every one of us would just be You know as soon as you believe boom you're you know taken up and waiting for the new heavens and the earth We'd automatically just go you know To be saved would be to save from this life, but God saves us in this life, he empowers us, he gives us, he sends us to the people who are around us. He calls us to love those who are around us. But we've complicated this idea of a mission and evangelism, thinking that it belongs to the select few, realizing that certain aspects do take logistics. So it's not like the rest, most of us are just gonna pick up today and we're gonna go to, uh, to Myanmar, and you know, let's all meet there in Myanmar sometime next week. We'll have church. We'll share the gospel with a few people. There takes logistics for us to be able to to do that, and with logistics, sometimes there's complication of things, and we've taken that principle, which does require some strategic planning, and we've now delegated that to mission and evangelism of the church. Well, not everybody's going to go, so who is it that's going to go? Okay, well, those people are going to go. Well, then we need a few people that are going to take care of them, so we'll create a committee that's going to take care of the people that are going to go. And I don't feel particularly called to go, so I'm pretty much off the hook, right? That's the way most of us think. But this commission that Jesus is giving to his disciples, he's given to all of his disciples, and we'll explore what that means here in a moment. But we've complicated this idea as if, This thing that everybody is called to participate in really belongs only to a select few and then they have to get qualified and, you know, there might be some other things to do. And if you've grown up in generations of the church and you've seen the church function that way, no wonder we're confused, no wonder we're not engaged and we don't feel that we can participate or do anything that is of any great significance. We need to recognize as we simplify things, in Jesus' words here right now is the whole church the entire church, which means every Christian who makes up the church, is called and commissioned to participate in God's mission. One of the things that we need to see, and maybe it's the only thing, if it's the only thing you see today, that itself would be sufficient, is those God saves, he sends. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what we get from what Jesus is saying in verse 21. Those he saves, he sends. And in John 20, 21, and also into verse verse 22, Jesus gives us some helpful points that I hope will shape our understanding of this aspect of living the Christian life. The first thing that we need to understand is this, is that we serve a sending God. Christians on mission know and trust that we serve a God who is on mission. Theologian John Stott says we serve our God is a missionary God. He is on mission. And his mission is not only to redeem, the big picture is to redeem a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation through every generation. But the strategy, part of his mission is that he's now on mission to recruit, to redeem, to empower, and to send people like you and me to participate in his bigger mission of redeeming a people and restoring a world to what it originally was. And so it's vitally important that we understand, as the foundation of our engagement with our community and engagement on mission, we serve ascending God in order for us to be faithful. Before I try to encourage you to do anything, my first task is to get you to do nothing. Nothing but to stop and think about the mission that our God is on what God is doing, and what God has done for you. Because if we don't stop and think about that, if we're not rooted in the reality that we serve a sending God, if we don't recognize that we are participating in the mission that he has initiated, that he is accomplishing, and he is continuing, then we look at mission and evangelism just as one more opportunity to put a feather in our cap, one more thing that we did that maybe somebody else doesn't do, one more way of looking at ourselves and saying, look, God, look at what I do and standing before God as if we've done something impressive. One more way of becoming Pharisee-like by saying, look at us as opposed to you slackers. If we don't recognize that when we participate, we are participating in what God is doing, we end up with a wrong foundation, and that often leads to disastrous results. We need to remember that God himself is on mission, and his mission is to get people like you and me involved in his missions. That's Missiology 101. But if you think about the whole scope of redemptive history, God created us as people that were made after his own image, and then we rebelled. Even before that, we are told, a conversation took place in heaven. We we see this picture, of Jesus in a conversation that's recorded in John 17, talking with his father about a covenant that he had made the covenant that was made within the trinity itself, known as the covenant of redemption. That God knowing that the people that he created would rebel and therefore follow from them, he, was, he had chosen to send his son into the world to redeem the world, because God so loved the world. that he didn't want to see those he created after his image perish. And so the father sends and Jesus volunteered, Jesus we're told in Philippians, he, although being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself like nothing, which is kind of insulting because that's like us, but he made himself nothing. And, and compared to the glory that is his, because Jesus is God, when he became like us, it would be as becoming like nothing. Becoming obedient even to death, even to death on the cross for the purpose of, and therefore he is exalted. It's it's a definition, it's an explanation of what Jesus did. God said, Look, we need somebody who's going to redeem. I'm sending you the Son. God the Father said that the Son says, I'm going. And then we're told that the Holy Spirit was sent by both the Father and the Son. The Trinity that has existed from all existence, all all, all creation. The Trinity, three distinct persons, yet one God forever. All equal in authority in glory, in majesty, and glory and majesty and worthy of worship. The Trinity, That if I try to explain it any more than I just have, I will step into some heresy because it seems impossible for me to try to explain the Trinity without being a heretic in some way. It is just mind-blowing, and yet the things that we understand. But from the very beginning, even before the very beginning, there was this plan that each person of the Trinity would participate in this mission to redeem a people and then to empower those people to participate in that mission. So Christ came and gave himself for us. Then God entered into a covenant with our father Abraham, you know, this pagan Iraqi, and said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless the world through you. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. But I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will bless, and you will bless. And part of the way that you bless, you're going to bless the nations around. Ultimate is because it is through that family that Christ would be born. But the mandate of the, what we call the Great Commission goes all the way back at least to Genesis chapter 12. God would call a people who would bless the nations, ultimately because through that people would come the Redeemer, the Savior. But those people were intended to bless the nations. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that the Israelites were not any more faithful than most evangelical churches are today and continually participating in the blessing. They looked for their own. They looked, they were thankful that God would bless them, said, God, bless me, bless me, bless me. And if there's anything left over, I'll give that to, you know, I'll gladly give that to other people. But it's just amazing how little gets left over the more we start looking at ourselves and what we feel that we need and what we could do with certain things. Nevertheless, God's mission was not quenched. I, I think that we need to recognize that we are the beneficiaries of that mission. When when Jesus gave the commission, as Matthew knows it, as Matthew expresses it, to go to all nations, we're the nations. We tend to think of ourselves as the the starting point and then the nations are places, you know, well, ironically, like Iraq and where God was originally at work. We're the nations. I, I don't know, there might be a handful of you here, if that, that have Jewish heritage, but if you have no Jewish heritage, You are the nations that were sent to. You are the beneficiaries of this mission that God has initiated, that the disciples carried out, and then those who they mentored and that were continued through the faithful. You are the beneficiaries because somehow, whether it is through your lineage or even just in your person, the gospel came to your family and then ultimately to you. And I think that we are too often unenthusiastic about the mission of God because we don't recognize the supernatural mission of God that reached out to a wretches like you and me. Most people, even those who have been Christians for years, don't think often enough about God's rescue mission. And we're inclined to think of our salvation, even when doctrinally we know better, we're inclined to think of our salvation as some sort of movement up and down a performance ladder. And so we need foundationally to understand we serve a God who is on mission. We serve a sending God. The second thing that we need to see and be reminded of is is this, is that those whom God saves, he sends. And we see this in Jesus' words. Just as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Jesus who is God in the flesh, Jesus who is the king, he has conquered death, he now has a kingdom, which is the good news of, of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. This kingdom is going to expand. He's going to, take, he's going to accomplish that and he's going to accomplish that through ordinary people that he is sending out. But when we read this statement, a couple of questions Ought to come to mind. And I can only touch on them this morning. For two reasons. One, even if I is, is I don't have time, and second is even if I had an unlimited time, I'm limited in my own understanding. And, and these are questions that we need to be asking regularly, and looking at each of the expressions of the Great Commissions and, and asking these questions. And the questions are these. Because if Jesus is saying, just as the Father sent me, I'm now sending you. How has the Father sent Jesus? I mean, what are the characteristics of the Father sending Jesus that we are supposed to now embody? And the second question is this, where? I mean, Jesus was clear. His mission was, you come to earth. Where is our mission? Where is it that Jesus is sending us? Begin with the first question is, how has the Father sent the Son? I think first and foremost, we need to recognize Jesus repeatedly said in word and deed. He demonstrated it, and it was stated. He came in order to do tremendous things, to bless the people who were around him, the people that he encountered. As part of that, he healed people miraculously. He met their tangible needs graciously. He was involved in very practical ways in their lives and that's something that we as the evangelical church need to hear because somewhere along the line we complicated things in saying the only thing that matters is that we get people saved the only way they're saved is that they hear the message of the gospel and if they hear the message of the gospel and they get saved well then we can take all of our resources we don't need to involve ourselves in these other things because they're just well they're just physical they're not spiritual Well, God never makes a distinction between the physical and spiritual because he saves, he saves the whole person. When he made us after his own image, he made us fully after his own image. Those who live around us, those who gather with us, everyone is of value because God created you physically and spiritually after his own image. And so the church is to be engaged, meeting the tangible needs of the people who are around us after the pattern of Christ. That means meeting the needs of the poor. That means feeding those who are hungry. That means clothing those who need things. That means bringing healing. Does that mean miracle? Well, sure, go ahead and pray for it. I once kind of snarkily said in a Presbyterian meeting, we're the PCA, of course we pray for people to be healed. You're only in trouble if somebody gets healed. Um, Anyway, And, and that's more of a reflection of an attitude, not really what we believe. Of course we pray for the miracles of God to bring healing, but we also recognize God in his providence has given us medicine and he's given us wisdom and he's given us more understanding. And so he's raised some up to be doctors and others to be encouragers and others to be counselors. We engage in the fullness of healing and that is continuing the work of Christ. Because everyone is valuable. And the church should not sacrifice that as if somehow it is of lesser importance. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We've grown up, many of us that grew up and even came to faith in the evangelical church, been influenced by a, a, a well-intentioned but erroneous theology that says, again, the only thing that matters is spiritual. And the analogy that I heard when I was a, a new believer is this. Look, you don't, if you're on the Titanic and people need to be rescued, you don't rearrange the furniture on the, on, while it's sinking. You know, you get everybody off. Well, that might be true, but the world's not sinking. God's in control of all things, and he's promised he's going to make it renewed. Now, I'm not going to get into the different theological debates as to whether we're going to participate in the true renewing of that. At the very least, I know this, is God has called us to faithfulness, and as we live our lives together, loving one another, loving our neighbors in practical ways, we become a picture, a postcard, a movie trailer of the kingdom that is to come, that is to attract those who are yet to be part of it, And so even if we're not going to usher it in, but God is going to come back in ultimately with a renewal that is totally unrelated to our specific efforts, people will participate because of the way that we practically love them. But don't mistake this either. And it's not a problem for our church, but it is important for us to recognize. You can do all the practical good things in the world, but unless people hear the word the words of the gospel, unless people understand their need to repent because they are sinners, because God's word says this is the standard and you have not reached the standard, they will not repent and they will not see their need and they will not believe in the Savior because even as the scriptures tell us, how will they believe if no one proclaims it to them? And how will it be proclaimed to them if no one goes to them? And so we need to recognize the Father sent a son in word and deed, and both of those are essential. But the second thing that we need to recognize is he sent his son in the flesh, incarnational. And the reason that we need to see this is because many churches that are affluent, or at least comfortable like our church is, we have this idea that somehow we can participate in the Great Commission, well, I'll pray, or some of you will say, I'll pay. But Jesus says, you know, praying, good. Playing and paying, good. But how about playing? Get in the game. Every one of us is commissioned. The Father says, just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. In this night after the resurrection, it wasn't like Jesus came into the room, shocked everybody, they were glad to see him, and he's saying, just as the Father sent me, So I'm sending you, Peter, you need to do this, because you know, James and John, Sons of Thunder, they got bad attitudes sometimes, they're just kind of angry, so you know, we need to leave them at home. Matthew, well, he's a tax collector, the people will never trust him again, I mean, you know, he took their taxes, he worked for the IRS, and you know, who knows what he's gonna do, we can't send him, because he's a bad representation. So Peter, you need to do this, and maybe Andrew can go with you, and you know, some of you go, some of you stay, that's not the conversation, without exception. The the Father sent me, I'm sending you. In Matthew's version of it, I, I love this because it begins with, and some of them doubted. And so these were not, it's not like they're all sitting there saying, we're ready to go, put us in, coach. It was, I don't know what's going on here. These were people that were confused. These were people that were broken. These were people that all had their own baggage. And Jesus, knowing all of that, because he spent, he spent three years with them, he says, go, I am sending you. But where do we go? I mean the needs are great everywhere. Well, what was Jesus' mission to the entire earth? Well, in one sense that might be simple because, you know, he's in heaven and all the heavens and you know, what's a little planet as opposed to all of the heavenlies? And we're much more limited. I think, first of all, we need to recognize the entire earth as a scope and people from every tribe and tongue and nation are the people that God is bringing in. It's so vitally important that everybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ understand that they are to be participants in the great global mission of reaching the nations of the world. Missionaries have done a good job of understanding this, is that the word here is, uh, the word that that, that, um, particularly uh, that Matthew uses is is ethnos, it's peoples, it's not geopolitical entities, so it's not can we get somebody in every country, or everybody in every county? It's every people group, every tongue, every tribe that it's, 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 it's a way broken up. And so missionaries have determined that there are numbers of people groups that need to be reached. And there are still many that need to be reached. And we are responsible for participating in the seeing that they are reached. And there's different ways in which you can do that. The reality is few of you are goers, but some of you might be. And one of the things that we need to get out of is this idea that, you know, okay, assuming I'm giving you an altar call this morning to decide who of you, who will volunteer, who will go on the great mission field. And I remember situations like that, sitting in church and thinking, I don't particularly feel called to that. I'm exempt. This, the rest of this is for everybody else. I, I've, when I was in youth ministry, and, and other times talking with students and saying, you know, have you ever considered missions? When you're thinking about what you're going to go to school for and you're going to study for, have you considered missions as a possibility? Well, I don't feel called to that, and and, and we tend to think that that's the end of the discussion. That's the end of the consideration. It's not the end of the consideration because every one of us is called to engage in this mission. Now, it may be that you're not called to go. Some of you will be, and I believe as a church we need to be praying that God will continue to raise up even more to come out from our number. But if I'm not called to go, then I need to say this. If I'm a college student going and beginning my studies, how will what I study, how will what I do contribute to the reaching of the nations of the world? it doesn't matter what you do, there is something that you are able to do that is going to participate in reaching the nations of the world. And so there are those who are goers, there are those who are senders, and being a sender is different than simply saying, I will pray because i put your magnet on the, wind, on the refrigerator door, and I'll contribute some money. Both are vitally important. and I'm not minimizing those because without you doing those things, those who do go cannot, continue, can, can, cannot accomplish what they're doing. But our endeavor is much more like what they do over at NASA than we tend to think. Very few that work for NASA are going to actually go into space. But everyone who works at NASA has a part to play in making sure that people get to space and get back. And the same is true for you. What is your role? What is your participation? What are you doing? And that's what it means to be a sender. You have a stake in this game. You are a participant, you are a player by using your talents, your resources, your gifts. But it requires that we remember that we're participating in this game. Well, what about local? The needs are abundant. And Jesus is sending us there too. It's important that we understand that participating in mission is not a sacrifice, nor is it one more thing that we do. It is what we are created for. And we all are called to bless the people who are around us. Not necessarily in the same place, but in different aspects of the community. Some of you have particular passions. Some of you have been involved in working with the, uh, the, the internationals who come to the community who can't read or write or speak English, and so you've helped them to, through participation in Literacy for Life. Great. You're blessing your neighbors. Others of you have participated in, uh, in, 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 in with the homeless, and I don't mean just the homeless shelter, which is a, a hit it and quit it kind of ministry. It's important that we do it as a church, but you know you commit to one or two shifts, of course of a year, I, again, vitally important, but that's not the same thing as being on mission with your life. And so some of you have participated and you've been involved in, in other areas, whether you work at the Grove or you work, with a, you work with people who are in need. Others, you can't figure it out, and so you spend your time working with the kids in T-ball, you know, that's part of the mission. See, there's no secular or sacred divide. Everybody is part of this mission field. And so if you go and you're coaching Little League baseball or soccer, and you're blessing the kids and praying for them and being available to the parents, and you're doing it for a reason, to honor God and to be a blessing to the people around that you're participating in the mission. You go and participate both. A number of years ago there there was a phrase that became very popular which is, think globally, act locally. It was began by environmentalists, it's been co-opted in education and business and other things too. But it also was embraced by someone in the church who came up with a a totally different name. Where is God sending us? And he says, it's glocal, it's a glocal mission global and local at the same time. God has put particular passions and given you particular skills and particular opportunities. Make sure that you recognize that you're wired and you're sent, you're commissioned to participate and use those things to reach the people of the nations and to somehow bless the people who are around us. Those whom God saves, he sends. That means you. But finally, we need to recognize the last thing that's vitally important for us is this, is that those whom God sends, he also empowers. In verse 23, we see this. Excuse me, verse 22. And when he had said this, after he had said, I'm sending you, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, just as a caveat here for those of you who are sticklers in terms of the Bible, uh, New Testament scholar Andres Kostenberger says, well, this was more of a symbolic and promise of the Holy Spirit because, you know, the Holy Spirit wasn't poured out until Pentecost, and so he wasn't pouring out the Holy Spirit at this time, but did so, you know, 40 days later. Um, I, you know, I just throw that out there for your consideration, but the reality is for us, practically speaking here this morning, it really doesn't matter. We're living post-Pentecost. Therefore, everyone who believes the Holy Spirit indwells. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ at the point of your belief, we know that the Holy Spirit believed and to you, is living within you. The reality is, without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have believed in the first place. And so, you know, Holy Spirit being at work upon you, and then when you believed indwelling you, if that's helpful for you to understand. But the point is, everyone who believes the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And part of the reason that he is there is that he is not only shaping us to become more like Christ, but he is equipping and he is empowering us to participate in the mission that God is sending us on. The point is this, that the Christians who are engaged in God's mission must deeply depend upon God to empower them to accomplish the very thing that God is sending them to do. Jesus had said to the disciples after, uh, before, right before Pentecost, and look, stay in Jerusalem, don't go anywhere yet. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes and fills you. Earlier, Jesus had told his disciples, and he was, what do you think you can accomplish without me? Nothing. You need me to empower you to do what you're going to do, and you can do nothing without me. And unfortunately, I suspect nothing or near nothing is the exact result that many of us are experiencing in our endeavors for mission right now. Why is that? Because many of us don't feel the need for the Holy Spirit to empower us because we're not attempting anything that we need the Spirit to empower us to do. We don't need the Spirit to empower us because we're not doing anything that we don't think we can accomplish on our own efforts. And so it's been a while, if ever, that we've been face down on the ground pleading for God to fill us with His Spirit, that He might do a work that is beyond our ability, but what we passionately want to see Him accomplish. But if we as Christians only accomplish What we can do on our own, we won't do much. Those whom God sends, he empowers. And he empowers you. He gives you specific gifts. He expects you to use those gifts in the context of the church. The building up, you're part of the NASA mission, sending people out, going, ministering to the people who are around you, strategically reaching or going to the people who are around us. God's spirit empowers The Lausanne Covenant, which is a, a statement of world-focused evangelical churches, says this, a church that is not missionary, a missionary church is contradicting itself and quenching the spirit. The same is true of anyone who considers himself or herself to be a Christian. If you're not on mission, locally, then you're contradicting yourself and quenching the Spirit. Now there are some here or some who are watching that don't have this grand mission. And one of the reasons is some of you are not Christians. And that's okay. Because you can be. It takes recognizing that you really want something more than what you presently have, more than what you've got. It means coming to an end of yourself and coming to an end of your ways and crying out to God, and he will hear your cry. It doesn't take religion. It doesn't take getting better. It takes a Savior, and our Savior loves broken, messed up people like me and you. There's others of you who don't have this grand mission, not because you're not Christians. You may have been Christian for years, but nobody's ever talked like this to you. Nobody's ever told you that those God saves, he sends, that you're not exempt. I just did. Now don't take my word for it. Explore the commissions of the scripture and show me the exemptions. Talk with us about it. I'm quite confident that what I'm saying Is right and then there are those who are Christians who know you should be involved and you just aren't now there are seasons in life if you're laid up in a hospital maybe you're exempt but even then I suspect not Carolyn's father was hospitalized with his cancer and the days were coming to an end he was ministering and encouraging the staff some of whom have continued to visit Carolyn's mother to this day because he shared the hope and the way he died testified to a peace that is beyond their ability to understand. And so even when you're laid up, you can still be part of mission, just not normally the way that you would think of it. But for those who claim to be Christians and This idea not frightens you. It is a frightening thing. It's more than we can do. But who don't want to participate. Or who are apathetic. There is no other word than disobedience. And it should make you wonder, am I a Christian really at all? Because if you are a Christian, God has called you and he has commissioned you. Missional engagement is not about pressure. It's not one more thing I I want you to do. It's purpose. It's empowering. You get to participate in God's rescue plan and God's redemption and God's restoring of the earth. That is an incredible, incredible thing. And all you need to say is, Here I am, Lord, send me. Father, bless us with these hard and yet glorious words. But we pray, do not send us if you will not go before us and go with us, but we know that you have come before us and you are always with us, even to the end of the age. And therefore, Lord, send us and see what we as a church might do in our community and in the world if we are faithful. Show us, Lord, and reveal your glory, we pray in Christ. Amen.